Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors podcast series. I'm Amanda White, editor of Top1000Funds.com and director of institutional content at Connexus Financial. I'm joined today by Esther Duflo, who is the Abdul Latif Jamil Professor of Poverty Alleviation and Development Economics at MIT. She's also a co-founder and co-director of the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab. Last year, Esther became the youngest person at age 46 and second ever female winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics. She was awarded jointly with Abhijit Banerjee and Michael Kremer for their experimental approach to alleviating global poverty. Welcome, Esther. It's very nice to have you here with us. You're joining us today from Boston. How are things for you there at this time? Um, thank you very much for having me. Boston has uh, beautiful weather and with the relaxation and lockdown, people are out in the parks uh, enjoying the, the sun. On the other hand, we can also hear the choppers overhead because of the um, policing of the anti, anti-racism demonstrations. So it's an interesting contrast between the families peacefully enjoying the sun and the helicopter above our heads. Yes, very interesting times indeed. So Esther, you and your fellow economists work on poverty alleviation in developing countries. And today we're going to explore what the health and economic pandemic induced by coronavirus means for those countries and what we can learn from your work, which essentially explores how we can create a better life for the world's most vulnerable Esther, I think one of the more refreshing things I've heard with regard to the impact of coronavirus on economies is your comments with regard to the impact on developing countries where you said, we don't know. This is not a time for lectures, perhaps, or or people touting solutions necessarily, but a time for inquiry and innovation, maybe a time for a bit of -of out-of-the-box thinking with regards to impact and solutions, including policy solutions. Certainly your humility is worth recognising Arguably, you're the most recognised expert with regards to economics in developing countries, and yet you're willing to say you don't know what the answer is. So thank you very much for that. In your research, you seek to understand the economic lives of the poor with the aim of developing design and evaluating social policies. The World Bank has said that almost 24 million fewer people in 2020 will escape poverty across East Asia and the Pacific alone due to the economic impact of this pandemic. What's your take on this? And do you think the response of the governments of poorer nations is adequate in both a health and fiscal policy sense to this crisis? Yes, thank you for uh, appreciating the the we don't know answer uh, when I gave it to, to Nick Christoph, the New Times journalist whom I very much appreciate. He was like, oh, that's not something very nice to print out in a newspaper. (laughs) But I told him, you know, we don't know. And it's very important to note that because in a way, that's a defining feature of this crisis for developing countries. That um, we, and in particular, the governments in those countries are really navigating with a blindfold on. Uh, We have very little sense of how uh, the disease interacts with the local conditions. Uh, There is very little testing. Whatever testing there is, is is not systematic or not always recorded or reported. So there is very little sense of what the epidemic even is. And early on, I think people 
uh, governments, many governments decided to do in, to go in, into full lockdown when there were very few cases, partly because they, they they wanted to buy time, and I think that was a very good decision at the time, and they got some flack from it because say in India or in Bangladesh, there were very few cases at the time. So the idea was that they were sacrificing the economies for a pandemic that wasn't even there yet. But unfortunately, they didn't use this time very well, which is because they basically started to reopen when the rich economies also reopened, which is precisely when you're starting to see an acceleration of cases. So the timing is entirely wrong. They locked down when there was few cases. Then the lockdown was not sustainable. They they opened up uh, when they were when the cases are going up, and the they they haven't sufficiently used the time to put in place um, a very good response in terms of uh, testing and tracing, in terms of getting their health system ready, and so on and so forth. So you mentioned there um, the rich countries. Do, do you think the crisis has exasperated the divide between rich and poor, not just on an individual level but on a country level? And what does that mean for investors who allocate capital globally? So in the very early day of the, of, of the pandemic, people were describing it as a great leveller, but it's actually turned out to be incorrect in the sense that what you see is two things. is both at the individual level and at the country level, poor people are more affected by the disease than richer people. So in the U.S., for example, the uh, African-American and Latinx communities are disproportionately affected. They are both more likely to become infected and more likely to die if they are infected. And then worldwide, if you adjust for age appropriately, uh, the mortality rates in India, for example, are, are something like four to 10 times as high as they are in Italy. So basically a 40-year-old in India is as likely to die as a 70-year-old in Italy, which shows how it is just not true that the pandemic is the leveler. On the contrary, it affects uh, those who are already poorer and sicker even more. And then the second aspect to it is that the, the economic consequences of the pandemic are also uneven because the rich countries have the ability to um, basically borrow their, their way out of the problem so what they can do is that uh, they can issue bonds. And we do know that given the credit rating, especially of the European Union as a whole or, or the US, it's money that in a sense they will never need to repay because investors like uh, you guys who are listening to this podcast will always be happy to hold that debt. But for the poorer countries, there was a lot of hesitation at the beginning to uh, really do the fiscal response that was necessary to protect people in lockdown because they were concerned about the impact that it would have on credit rating. So basically, in order to spend 10% of its GDP, India must go out and borrow 
But then the worry was that, well, if we do that, then our credit rating is going to fall. So I don't know how one could uh, fix that, but I think it would be extremely important for the industry to give uh, uh, a sort of moratorium, not so much on the payment, because a lot of middle economies are still able to, to, to pay their debts, uh, but on the signaling that it has of what is their, uh, their, their, their credit worthiness. And the poor countries, very much like the rich country, needed to be able to go their way out of the current crisis. And in many cases, it's been limited by this, by this fear that it would have long-term implications on their ability to borrow in the future. So I'm interested in exploring a little bit more about what role my audience could play in all of this, if anything at all. You said that before COVID-19 rippled across the world, 15,000 children under the age of five died every day in the global south mostly of preventable diseases associated with poverty. And it's likely that many more will die if their families are plunged even further into poverty. So what can my audience do, the global finance community, what can they do to change that? Are investments in fintech in Africa, for example, a worthwhile discussion or is it allocating more to emerging market debt or less to emerging market debt? What can this audience do to mobilise and affect change? Well, I wish I could give you a, um, a good answer to this question. I, I think it's not necessarily the, really the role of the market to do that, uh, and not really necessarily within the, within the, um, the tool and the arrow that the market has. Um, in particular, I think there, there is always a hope, and it's a very evergreen hope that um, there are win-win solutions and there is a way to uh, make money while doing good and you can, uh, um, you know, so fintech would be an example or you could find uh, um, profitable um, companies that would also be uh, uh, doing something useful for societies. Unfortunately, I think for public health problems, like uh, immunizations, like prevention of uh, um, diarrheal diseases, like um, preparedness for something like COVID. You need um, public money, uh, and so countries need to be able to raise taxes and uh, um, raise revenues and, 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 and uh, spend them effectively. I do think that there is something we have to think on, on, on the debt from those emerging countries. Uh, I, as we were discussing before, I think it's more about uh, the, the structure of this debt. So, in, of course, immediately during COVID, there was an effort to uh, have a moratorium on the debt payment in, in Africa, which was essential. But it was a little bit timid and it could have been uh, bigger. And I think in a large part, it will be necessary to have uh, a forgiveness of a lot of this debt in order to allow them to have the breathing space to spend money on supporting their citizens. That said, I think it's your example of fintech is a very good exception to what I just said. 
which is that uh, one really silver lining uh, in African countries that has been extremely helpful in the current situation is the um, fairly widespread availability of um, electronic money linked to people's cell phones. And this is something which is very present in many countries in Africa. It started in Kenya with M-Pesa, and it's spread out in many African countries. And countries have been able to use the system as a sort of pipe to send out uh, cash transfers quickly and effectively to their population. So, for example, the little country of Togo, which only has 8 million people and uh, a GDP per capita that makes it one of the poorest countries in the world, was able, within a week of the uh, uh, pandemic reaching its peak uh, worldwide, to uh, uh, send money to people as at the same time as it was implementing a partial lockdown and a curfew, and therefore to protect people from the economic consequences of uh, this curfew. And when you do that, there is plenty of evidence now that uh, cash received in this way is very well spent by households, and that allows them to sustain their consumption level in case of crisis, so COVID being a prime example, of course, and therefore, it avoids um, the leverage effect that transforms a sort of punctual crisis into a self-sustaining Keynesian bust. Just sending cash is very cheap. It's very effective. It can, done, it can be done very fast. It's, of course, not something that's going to be financed by your audience. But it is something that can be done through a financial infrastructure that is provided privately, and that is, is otherwise money-making. So that is something to, to definitely consider. I think FinTech has been a, a, a very important part of the response, such as it was, and it could be of the preparedness moving forward. So just on the back of that conversation and, and, and maybe expanding this power of cash conversation. In your recent book, Good Economics for Hard Times, you recommend that poor countries implement a universal ultra basic income, which is a regular cash transfer that amounts to enough for basic survival. Is there an argument for this policy to be used in the Western world as well? For So for example, in the United States, you know, where there's growing inequality and a, and a two-tiered existence between the top 1% or top 10% and everyone else, would this be a feasible policy? So we, we considered it uh, for the United States as well. It's, of course, a, a proposal that was at the core of the um, uh, presidential campaign of Andrew Young and that received uh, significant support and debate here. Uh, but ultimately, in the book, we came, uh, came out against the idea of a universal uh, basic income uh, for richer economies uh, for two reasons. The first one is that it would have to be a fair amount of money. It cannot be ultra-basic for people to um, afford a dignified existence in, in the rich countries. In, the poor com- in a very poor country, an ultra-basic income makes the difference between putting food on the table and not, and that is like essential to people. In the richer countries, food of the people on the table is not sufficient uh, to get uh, able to to regain your footing in, in, in life. The second, uh, and related to that, 
what we, we found is people mostly want to work. So the, the proponent of universal basic income basically recommend universal basic income as a substitute for a regular job. And what we argue is that that's not an adequate substitute because to get meaning in life, people need to want to work. They want to have a place and they want to earn the money. And therefore, the same amount of money that would be spent in the universal basic income can be spent in a more uh, Keynesian type way of creating jobs for people. And we call that smart Keynesianism, uh, which means that creating jobs for the people in sectors that have a lot of positive externalities for society, for example, um, uh, early childcare, uh, um, care of the elderly people at home instead of going to uh, to old age home that we saw in COVID times uh, in any case a disaster and other things like that, where these jobs will never be replaced by robots. Uh, they, are, they have a lot of societal value on top of the private value they produce and therefore governments are very well placed to uh, subsidize them. And they would create jobs that are qualified jobs, that have jobs with a mission that um, uh, people would be happy to, to take. And the, so that's the, the, the first reason. And the second reason is that in, why it's different is that in, in richer countries, we have a lot of statistical data about who needs money when. And therefore, we are able to do sophisticated targeting. And therefore, you can spend more money on people who really need it, as opposed to blanket the whole country uh, with money, including a lot of people like uh, me, for example, who clearly don't need any universal basic income. But in poorer countries, you've, your work found that it's actually very uh, worthwhile and, and very effective. Have you seen any evidence of that in practice? In poorer countries, you can, you can get away with a very small transfer and you would make a lot of difference. And also, we don't have the governments don't have the data to adequately target people. They do a terrible job at it. And therefore, blanketing people would be more, more effective, more cost-effective. Unfortunately, there, there, there hasn't a country that has adopted that as a general policy. But in the context of COVID, there have been kind of one-time transfer or two-time transfer that were near universal. Plenty of evidence, experimental evidence, on um, you know, this type of transfer experimented on a smaller scale where we see that people use the money well and, um, and that it, it doesn't get them to work less. On the contrary, if anything, it gets them to work more so that it has a, multi a positive multiplier effect. So lastly, Esther, I want to expand a little bit on more to talk about your work and the work you and your colleagues were recognised for in receiving the Nobel Prize. In awarding the prize, the Nobel Committee said... Their experimental research methods now entirely dominate development economics. This has transformed development economics with its ability to provide reliable answers about the best ways to fight global poverty. So you pioneered the use of randomised controlled trials to alleviate poverty, and you're now applying that to compare government communication strategies on public health at the Poverty Action Lab at MIT. In the public domain, you've addressed that by asking the question, do you appeal to people's collective instinct or do you appeal to the instinct 
for self-preservation. Can you tell us a little bit more about or explain to us about the application of your work in this regard? Are you essentially saying that it's more effective for policymakers to look at evidence of individual behaviours and adjust policies to be the most effective to meet that, as we were just talking about, rather than the collective? So what we, uh, the, the idea of the experimental approach is that there are many cases where you, you have no idea which policy would be more effective than or which version of the policy would be more effective or even if it's worthwhile doing something or not. Uh, so, for example, one question in the context of COVID is, given that people are inundated by information, does it make sense to provide even more information on top of it? And if you do, uh, what in, how should you frame the information? Should you frame it as uh, um, a message that is going to protect yourself, or should you frame it as a message that's going to protect the community? Should you, if you talk to people about uh, washing their hands, will they also remember to practice social distancing and to wear a mask? And finally, if you inform some people, is it going to spread or do you really need to touch every single person? So all of these are questions where that we sort of need to know in order to, to find out whether it's worthwhile, you know, spending the effort and the resources, uh, sending messages to people and, and and how to choose the messages. So what we did is that we used the fact that um, uh, Abhijit Banerjee, my, my husband and co-Nobel Prize winner, has become a bit of a household name in West Bengal, where he's from. And working with the West Bengal government, we sent um, 25 million text messages to people in West Bengal, along with uh, a video of uh, uh, Professor Banerjee just delivering a speech on uh, uh, how to protect yourself from COVID. And what we did is that some people didn't get the message, uh, some people got uh, some version of the message, and some people got some other version of the message. And we found two, three things. The first one is that the message mattered, despite the ambient information that circulates uh, people are better informed and they change their behavior when they receive the message. The second is that it spreads very widely in the community and it also spreads even to the behavior that are not dis uh, described in the message. So that it's actually, by sending one message, you do much more than, than reaching one person and one behavior. Uh, so it's actually cost-effective. And the third one is that the, the nature of the message doesn't really matter. So appealing to the individual instinct versus appealing to the to the uh, broader sense of protecting society is equally effective. So uh, so that was useful. We now know that. And so in, in addition, 25 million people and about three, three times as many uh, of their uh, community members are better informed. And this was all done in record time uh, over basically a period of a week during COVID providing the basis for the government to now know uh, whether and how they can uh, convey the next message, set of messages they need to convey to, to villagers as uh, the landscape change and they need to know more. Amazing story. Esther, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. We're most grateful. And thank you also for the amazing work you do. Thank you so much for having me. 